This is Steady Habits. I'm John Dankosky, and it's a pretty big week for the U.S. Supreme Court. Their very, very long term comes to an end. It was conducted under unusual circumstances because of coronavirus, and it tackled some of the most important cultural and workplace issues of our times. It also featured a court that has President Donald Trump's imprint all over it. Now, depending on when you're listening to this podcast, the court's term may have already wrapped up with the final decisions coming down on Thursday morning. Earlier in the week, we talked with one of the most knowledgeable court watchers around, Linda Greenhouse, the longtime New York Times reporter and current Supreme Court columnist. She joined us for a Steady Habits special event on Tuesday night with a few hundred mirror readers listening in on Zoom and asking their own questions. And it came one day before a pair of 7-2 decisions expanding the rights of religious organizations to limit contraception coverage and other workplace protections to workers. Now, both of those religion cases and some others that you'll hear us talk about are part of what Greenhouse calls the project of the John Roberts-led court. It's an opening up of both the public square and public dollars to religion. Despite those victories for conservatives, though, Greenhouse has been watching pretty closely how the Chief Justice sided with liberals on the court in three major decisions about LGBT rights, immigration, and abortion. Linda, it's good to see you in person, if not directly in person. It's good to have you here. Oh, it's good to be here. I've been a a Mirror supporter ever since I learned about it when I moved back to New Haven, uh, where I grew up a few years ago, and I said to somebody, what's going on in Connecticut? I have no way of knowing what's going on in Connecticut. And she said, well, there's this thing called the Connecticut Mirror. So that's why I'm here. Well, we're very glad that you're here, and we, we thank you for being such a great supporter for all these years. How is this court behaving differently, acting differently, and in serving up this term differently than any court in history? They decided <clears throat> wisely to close the court in late in mid to late March. Uh, they canceled the March and April arguments, or I should say they deferred them. They deferred some cases. Uh, they heard 10 cases in May, and usually the arguments end in April. So they heard some of the March and April cases in May. They happened to be some of the biggest cases of the entire term, the term that started the first Monday of last October. That's why the session's gone on uh, later than people assume. Oh, well, they always end in June. Well, they always end in June, except when they don't. And they're still deciding the, the cases they've, they've heard in, in May. Uh, they're not meeting face-to-face. They're not in the building, as far as I know. Uh, they're not having their usual weekly closed-door conference. It's all by, I don't think it's by Zoom. I think it's by some kind of telephone connection. And when they move the, <clears throat> the arguments to virtual arguments in May, and the entire public could listen in, uh, it was carried on C-SPAN, CNN, I think. Um, it was not visual, it, but it was real-time audio. And that made a difference because you didn't get the, the, the visual cues that you would get when you have nine people on a bench being addressed by one lawyer at a time uh, where justices typically are interrupting one another, interrupting the lawyer. It's a very lively thing. So it was set up so the chief justice would call on each justice for about two or three minutes to go through their questions. And of course, everything in the Supreme Court works by seniority. So he would first turn to Clarence Thomas, who's the senior associate justice. 
and then Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who's the number two in seniority, and so on down the line to uh, Brett Kavanaugh, who's the junior justice. And so it had a kind of a, a formal, almost scripted um, a feeling that the usual the flow of the usual arguments not like that at all. Um, but their decisions read like their usual decisions. They're you know getting the work done. See, that's what I wanted to ask you about because the work is being done so differently because so much is remote. Some of it's very formal when it was normally informal, but also that they're not in the same room ever together. Do you think it's changed anything about the way this court has actually functioned? I actually don't think so because what people don't generally realize is that they're not often in the same room together. Of course, they're in the courtroom together when they're hearing arguments and they're in the conference room uh, once or twice a week, depending on what part of the term they're in, uh, where they sit around a table. But in terms of sort of hashing things out, it's really all done on paper still, as far as I know, uh, where somebody will write a memo and say, you know, I would like to be able to sign your opinion, but I have a problem with that footnote or that paragraph, and would you accommodate me? And then I might be able to sign it and this kind of thing. Even in the normal days, that's done on paper so that all the colleagues can see it at the same time. It's circulated to everybody. Um, so the fact that they're remote now um, actually has changed less than one might, than one might think. Of course, it's enabled by technology. Uh, when Justice John Paul Stevens, a wonderful man who died last summer at age 99, um, in his last decades on the court, he was rarely at the court except when he had to be for arguments and so on. Uh, he basically lived in Fort Lauderdale and he worked remotely. He was a kind of a pioneer in that. So. Um, you know, so they, they've, they've managed pretty well, I think. So let's get into some of what the, the Supreme Court has actually done this year. And I think the best way to frame it probably is to is to say there are three big surprises so far on the court, one having to do with, with DACA, one having to do with LGBT rights, and one having to do with a big abortion case. Which one do you want to take first? Well, I'll, I'll take Bostock, which was the LGBT case, um, because it was very interesting. And I wasn't totally shocked by the outcome, but the fact that Justice Gorsuch wrote the majority opinion holding that Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, uh, which is the uh, part of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 that protects against discrimination in the workplace, um, extends to LGBT people and the court uh, read the notion, uh, it, the, by its terms, it, it bars sex discrimination on the job. So what is sex discrimination? <clears throat> and the claim was, um, on the other side, as Justice Alito put it in his dissenting opinion, well, Congress didn't say anything about LGBT, and so how could we interpret it? And what Justice Gorsuch said, joined by Chief Justice Roberts, is uh, sex discrimination is sex discrimination, and if an employee uh, is discriminated against because of, for instance, uh, um, having a same-sex partner, and if it was a different sex partner, uh, he wouldn't be discriminated against, that's sex discrimination. So we played it out that way. And 
They've extended workplace protection, of course, to millions of people, um, something that Congress had been unable to explicitly accomplish in recent years. So that was a very major statutory opinion. That was an opinion of, of statutory interpretation. Uh, the DACA case that you mentioned was a case basically of administrative law. So as people remember, um, President Obama by executive order had extended this um, non-deportation ability to work for uh, young people who have been brought to this country as undocumented immigrants, grew up as Americans, the only country they ever knew. And if they met certain qualifications, they had to be in school or have graduated and have a good record and so on, uh, they could get this deportation deferral. Uh, President Trump came in and um, with the wave of, it, of his hand decided to undo that. And the question was not did he have the power to undo it, which he does, as the Chief Justice said in the majority opinion, but did he do it properly? And uh, the Chief Justice, having come of age as a Washington lawyer and a judge on the Federal Court of Appeals in Washington, administrative law, which is really where we as citizens meet the government, sounds kind of boring, but it is crucial. Administrative law will save us, if anything will. Hmm. You've got to procedurally be transparent, uh, give your reasons, stick to your reasons, not come up with phony reasons after the fact, and so on. And so the Chief Justice, who, by the way, a year ago, had applied those same principles to saying that the Trump administration could not, with a wave of its hand, add a citizenship question to the 2020 census, really the same rationale said the president had done it incorrectly. That leaves the president free to go back and try to redo it. But of course, that will go through the courts. And in the intervening time, we will have an election in November. So that was very, very interesting. Although not, it was a relief. I can't say it was a shock having seen the Chief Justice's performance in the census case. Um, the only purely constitutional case of these three uh, was June Medical, the abortion case. Louisiana had enacted the exact same law that the court had found unconstitutional in 2016 in Texas, that is to say, requiring doctors who perform abortions to have admitting privileges at nearby hospitals. Uh, in those red states, they cannot get admitting privileges for reasons that have nothing to do with their competence uh, so it's just a phony law that's a way of shutting down abortion clinics, destroying the abortion infrastructure that makes it possible for women to exercise their constitutional right to abortion. And the court having decided the same case in 2016, the Chief Justice said, um, I'm bound to decide it this way again in 2020. So um, he gave his vote to strike down the Louisiana law in saying that he is sticking with precedent, the legal term being stare decisis, to stand by that which has been decided, he actually reformulated the precedent more to his liking. Uh, you can get an argument going on how significant that is, what the meaning of it is, but it's just in its terms, pretty fascinating that he says, I'm standing by precedent. That drives me to this outcome. Uh, as he describes the precedent in actually quite a different way from 
what the court did in 2016, a decision from which he actually had dissented and tells us that he still thinks it was wrongly decided. So it's fascinating as uh, internal court dynamic. And it's also, of course, very important for, I won't say the future of the right to abortion, that's still hanging by a thread, but for the ability of women, at least today and tomorrow and probably next week and next month uh, to exercise their constitutional rights. And you've written about this a bit, and I wonder if we can pull this apart a, a bit more. What exactly does it does it leave the court open to in the future? And is this in your mind, John Roberts, laying the groundwork for future cases that the court is going to hear? Or is this John Roberts essentially just deciding on this case one at a time in a very methodical way? Well, that's a good question. And I think the right answer is that no Supreme Court justice is ever dealing with the case on the table because the court knows that it's, it's a law-giving institution. It's not just a dispute-resolving institution. And that anything it decides in case A is necessarily going to have an impact on case B, C, and D at, in the lower courts as the lower courts try to interpret what the court has done and the case has come back up. So of course he had the future in mind. Um, you know, was, was he playing a kind of a shell game, shadow game here? I, I don't necessarily think so, but what he did was, um, what, what the court had done in 2016 in a case called Whole Woman's Health, it was a majority opinion by Justice Stephen Breyer, said, look, when you've got an abortion regulation that uh, is, is justified by the state as a means of protecting women's health, we've got to decide if it actually protects health. And if it doesn't protect health or it doesn't protect health much on one hand of the scale, we put on the other hand of the scale, how big an obstruction is it? So it's kind of a, it's a balancing test. It's kind of a sliding scale. You get very little benefit and a heavy burden. It becomes an undue burden. And that's the test uh, for what makes an abortion regulation unconstitutional. The test set in 1992 in the case called Planned Parenthood against Casey. What the chief justice said is, you know, I never liked that balancing stuff because I don't understand what you're supposed to be balancing. I'm, I want to go just if it's a substantial obstacle then chances are it's an undue burden. We don't have to look at whether it gives any benefit. Well, that's fine. That was enough to, s to solve this case, certainly, because the, the obstacle was complete. In effect, it had, had it gone into effect, it would have left Louisiana with a single doctor at a single abortion clinic performing abortions in the state of Louisiana. Obviously a substantial obstacle. You can look at other health justified regulations coming down the road. The one that I think is the most obvious is using telemedicine for medication abortion. That's the abortion where you take the, the two pills in sequence. And even before the pandemic, uh, some doctors in some states had authorized doctors to do this where the patient comes in, say, a rural area where, you know, there's hundreds of miles to the nearest clinic and so on. And uh, a, a nurse practitioner or somebody takes an ultrasound, uh, verifies how, how far along the pregnancy is. So is the patient 
uh, you know, qualified is the is the pregnancy early enough to be qualified for the medication abortion, and then with the doctor looking on as you know you're looking at me, um, discusses it with the patient, and the pills are dispensed for the patient to take, the first one in the office and the next one, at home, very routine. Uh, some states had started saying, uh, oh no, we can't allow that. We have telemedicine for everything, but not for that kind of, you know, abortion exceptionalism. And, you know, you can argue on the health side or on the burden side, but you somehow, the, carving that out from the, the sliding scale, the balancing test that the court had established um, could come out to a, you could see it coming out to a conclusion that might say the states are right to limit telemedicine in that situation when I think objectively the states are doing it not for women's health, but because it's a way of women exercising their own agency and not needing to jump through all the hoops that, are, that you have to go through to get to a clinic. So uh, we'll see. We'll see what it, what it, it means. It is interesting, though, in the context of what we started our conversation with, which is that the court, along with the rest of the world, is doing things quite a bit differently. And I, I guess I just wonder when when there are cases like that that involve a relatively new way of thinking about performing medicine, whether or not these are things that are actually going to be considered by the justices somewhat differently given the, the context of the, the current moment. Well, that's interesting. Of course, you know, any case that reaches the Supreme Court comes with a record, a record of trial. So in, in this June medical case, the Louisiana case, there have been a six-day trial with abundant findings on, you know, are these admitting privileges necessary or whatever. I mean, the the medical profession weighs in, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists weighs in. So the justices are not just sort of making it up. Uh, they have they have a, a record to, to go on uh, as well. Of course, they're living in the world as we all are. So, you know, will that kind of enlighten them if and when such a case comes to them? They don't have such a case on their docket, uh, you know, right this minute. Um, so, you know, you're, you're I mean, you're onto something to say that doesn't the current context uh, mean that the justices are seeing things differently? They're not shielded from the reality that we're all dealing with. The headline writers suggest that these three cases we just talked about are a rebuke to President Trump. Do you read it like that? Yeah, I don't think the um, LGBT case or the abortion case had much to do with Donald Trump. The DACA case certainly did, and that was a rebuke. It's, you know, you tried to cut corners. Uh, when the lower court said you haven't explained it well enough, you came back with a made-up explanation. And uh, I think it's, it's necessary, not only possible, but necessary to read that uh, as a rebuke. Um, they didn't follow the principles of administrative law, which are principles that are pretty clear and the court's been pretty clear about them over time. So, um, so yes, I would say so. The thing that amateur uh, observers of the Supreme Court, though, always tend to do is we tend to look at uh, five, four decisions in which uh, the conservative uh, chief justice sides with the liberal minority in the court 
as saying something very specific about the way the court is constructed, the way that John Roberts is running the court. And, and I guess I'm wondering if you can tell us about the reality of that, about whether or not these 5-4 decisions that are coming down not in favor of, of the conservative majority are, are saying something about John Roberts and the type of court that he is trying to, to have right now. Well, the, the, the court's in a very tough spot in that for the first time in, I don't want to say forever because I'm not a historian, but it's the first time in memory, the ideology of the sitting justices maps completely on the ideology of the president who appointed each one. So the five conservatives, which I include Chief Justice Roberts, were all appointed by Republican presidents. The four liberals were all appointed by a Democratic president. So that the country can look at this and say, wait a minute, are these nine people just politicians in robes? Is something new, really. If you just think back a few years, we had John Paul Stevens appointed by Gerald Ford, who was on the liberal side of the court. We had David Souter appointed by the first President Bush, who was on the liberal side of the court, and so on. I mean, it's, it, it's really never been the case that there's no crossover. So John Roberts, whose name is on the door, it's the Roberts Court, history's going to judge him knows this. He was a summa graduate in history at Harvard. He knows this. So what to do? Um, he's trying to thread a very delicate needle and accomplish what he wants to accomplish uh, without throwing his court over a cliff. It's a tough period for him. Uh, I, I wrote in one of my recent columns that when I think of him, I think of the struggle that must be going on between his very conservative heart and his very history and institution-minded head. Uh, so he's got people to his right, Clarence Thomas and to some degree Neil Gorsuch, who basically are at war with constitutional law as it has evolved since the middle of the 20th century. They would throw it all over. And he's got people on his left who are to his left and what to do. So he's trying to modulate this and, and to find ways of deciding cases that um, uh, don't give away the store to one side or the other, I guess you might, you might say. Um, and that could be maybe a way of interpreting the abortion case. Um, the DACA case, because theoretically the president can go back for a second chance. What, what it doesn't mean is what some of the head, headlines, I think, imply that the chief justice has, has you know, drunk some liberal Kool-Aid and is, uh, is moving to the left. I don't actually believe that's true. I think the spectrum has moved to the right. Uh, that's certainly true uh, with the advent of um, of Brett Kavanaugh replacing Anthony Kennedy. I wouldn't necessarily say that for Neil Gorsuch replacing Antonin Scalia. You know, so, so what are John Roberts' projects? And that's, you know, maybe being a little cute, but if, if he was not suffering from the institutional constraints that I just described, what would he do? And one thing that he would do for sure is lower the barrier between church and state, 
expand the ability of religious people to uh, have access to the public square, have access to public benefits. This is important to him and to a majority of the court. And the court decided a case last week that opens the door to, I think, massive aid to parochial schools with public taxpayer money. That wasn't quite the question, but the implication of this case from Montana that came down last week. I, I guess I'm just wondering if if you feel like religion in this case is is a stand-in for the the real big divide here that we have between the right and the left in America. Well, not just a stand-in. I think religion is really in the front lines of the culture war. So, for instance, um, take the LGBT case. You know, I mean, there are now the courts are filled with claims. You know. Not only I can't bake a cake for a same-sex wedding because that's against my religion. You remember Masterpiece Cake Shop a few years ago. I can't arrange flowers. I can't take the photograph. Um, there's a case for the courts next term after the first Monday of this coming October where um, the Archdiocese of Philadelphia is saying, um, we can't abide by your non-discrimination principles. We won't place foster children, which we have in our care as contractors with the social service agency of philadelphia we won't place them with same-sex couples and if you don't like it we'll just have to walk we can't we can't deal with this we have a religious objection to it so all these cases are playing out you know the supreme court is never going to reverse obergefell that was the case in 2015 that established the constitutional right to same-sex marriage that's a done deal but all these workarounds are based in religion. There's no separating religion from the culture wars. The culture wars, in my opinion, are about religion. That's Linda Greenhouse of the New York Times, and we'll get back to our conversation on steady habits about the Supreme Court in just a minute. But first, let me tell you, the Connecticut Mirror is free, and that's the way we think it should be. But it does cost money to produce the most trusted reporting about public policy in Connecticut. It does. And advertising makes up just about 10% of our revenue. So that doesn't necessarily add up. If you value the mirror, we invite you to help pay for it. And in return, we'll give you some special benefits. We call this membership. Yeah, membership, just like public radio. Member benefits include special briefings, insights into the reporting process, and access to a whole bunch of member-only events throughout the year, a lot of them hosted by me, things like Zoom and Brews, Ask the Mirror, and coffee conversations. It's a bit of a two-for-one deal, the satisfaction of supporting a newsroom you rely on every day, and access to all sorts of exclusive events and resources on politics and public policy. So visit ctmirror.org donate to learn more about becoming a member today. Thanks so much. As I mentioned at the top of our program, our conversation with Supreme Court expert Linda Greenhouse happened on Tuesday night before the last few decisions of the court that came out this week. But it was just after an interesting case that led to a unanimous decision. It's one of a few decisions that the court has made in the last few years that will tell us a lot about what the 2020 election will look like. Yeah, yeah so the, the question in this case was, um, can states bind their electors to uh, reflect the popular will in that state? Or can you have you know, rogue or faithless electors who say, you know, I don't care who won, I'm voting for candidate X or no candidate at all, in fact. Uh, and this has been a kind of open question uh, for the last 200 
in more years uh, seem like kind of a tough issue. Two lower courts had divided on it. That's why the court actually took it for decision. And uh, by a vote of nine to nothing, the court said, yes, states can bind their electors if they so choose. And Elena Kagan wrote the opinion. It's short, 18 pages. That's very short for a Supreme Court opinion. Uh, it's jargon free. It's fun to read. She's got a lot of kind of <laughs> modern cultural references to, you know, Veep and Hamilton or whatever. Um, I encourage people, if you've never read a Supreme Court opinion and would like to read one, go on the court's website, um, go down, pull down the tab that says opinions. And uh, this case is called Chafalo uh, against Washington and just uh, download it and read it. And it's, um, it's very interesting. And, and I know there's a question about, well, what about this, uh, these state compacts this state compact system that some states have, including Connecticut, have joined that say um, we're going to bind our electors to vote for that candidate that won the popular vote. So it's an end run around having a candidate who doesn't win the majority of the popular vote, but wins the electoral vote from getting to the White House. And a number of states have signed this, not enough to make the difference they have to get to 270 electoral votes but it seems to me anyway i mean the court didn't discuss this but it seems to me that to the extent that you interpret the opinion as saying that states have discretion to bind their electors or not as the case may be or to instruct their electors how to vote they can instruct their electors to vote for whoever won the nationwide popular vote and um so uh, certainly this decision is not an impediment uh, to, to getting to that. Uh, I, I think it's helpful, actually. I, I do want to ask you, though, about what role you think this court is playing already and will play in our ability to have free and fair elections between now and, and November, because that is clearly one of the biggest concerns in American life right now. Well, the court had better start playing a more constructive role than it's been playing. Um, the other day, there was an emergency case from Alabama, which is about to have a primary. And Alabama, um, in its endless quest to suppress the vote, had adopted a, um, a new policy that if you're voting absentee, you have to get your absentee ballot either notarized or witnessed by two adult witnesses and you have to submit uh, photo ID, uh, government issue photo ID to show that it's you. Now, I don't know if any of our listeners have tried to get anything notarized lately, even in a major city. Uh, my, my lawyer husband had to get something notarized a few weeks ago, and it took him half a day, even though he actually was a notary when we lived in Maryland. So the notion of some rural person in Alabama trying to exercise their franchise and jump through these hoops is the, the cynicism, it just reeks of cynicism. And uh, the court, without an opinion, five to four, let this go. Uh, you know, let, is, is letting Alabama get away with this, at least for now. And uh, it's one of the worst things they've done. And it passed under the radar because it 
was not a case that was on the docket. The decision came out last Friday night on the eve of the holiday at about 10 o'clock at night. And um, I was just shaken by it, actually. So I hope the court has this in view. I'm not real confident it was Chief Justice John Roberts who wrote the Shelby County opinion for a five to four court back um, eight or nine years ago that destroyed the efficacy of uh, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, destroyed the ability of the federal government to supervise vote changes. This never would have gotten through if Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act was still uh, in effect um, in the so-called covered states, the basically the, the South. Um, so it's, we're at a very serious inflection point in obviously in the integrity of our voting system, by which I mean allowing the greatest number of people to vote. I'm wondering how you feel, given these decisions that that have come down this year and in past years in the Roberts Court, whether or not you think that they will take into account the fact that voting in America in 2020 is a hell of a lot different than voting in America has ever been, ever. Well, they didn't take it into effect, uh, was it back in... April, I guess, in the Wisconsin, in Wisconsin. case. Um, you know, that was another of these emergency applications. And so it was not a not a full opinion. Um, but, you know, they they didn't let Wisconsin have the ex, you know extended time uh, that they had asked for. And it was a big mess in Wisconsin. And, um, you know, I would have hoped they learned their lesson, but evidently not. So um, people just have to keep a really close eye on this. And we don't have many ways of holding the Supreme Court of the United States to a, to account, but at least um, shine some light on it because um, it is very important. And we're in a very dicey period now, you know, on the absentee ballot with the president claiming every, you know, few hours that absentee voting, absentee means voting by fraud. We know that's not true. There were several states that went to absentee ballots, uh, you know, years ago, and there's been no evidence of fraud. And, um, you know, people just have to be willing to push back and not be uh, polite or shy about it. I, a lot of questions that we've been getting here, and I think that, you know, the people who watch the court uh, from afar ask a lot is, you know, is, is John Roberts just a politician? Is are his decisions inherently political? And you discussed this earlier, but how much do you do you believe that he is thinking about politics, if at all, when he is when he is running the court or when he's making his his decisions? Well, you know, I never like to pretend to know more than I know, and I haven't had John Robertson on the couch. Um, <laughs> I think he believes that he is fulfilling his judicial function. He does not believe that he's acting as a politician, and he would be horrified to think that he was. Um, you know, but we, I mean, we all see things the way we see things. And, you know, obviously anybody who, uh, you know, wanted to dice up things that I've been saying on the program so far, it's obviously that I come at these things from a progressive point of view. 
uh, he comes at things from quite a different point of view. And he's always got to decide, okay, the, the main thing anybody on the Supreme Court has to do is hold five votes, right? That does not always happen. So, you know, what's my running room? What are the options that are available to me? Uh, what am I trying to accomplish? What can I accomplish? How is this going to look? How's this? What are lower courts going to make of it? All, all those things, they're intangible, some of them. And, uh, you know, so I push back a little of, uh, on this sort of, you know, either or, or, you know, who do you like best, your mother, your father, or whatever. It, it's, it's, it's more complicated than, than that. But he's certainly very aware because he's a smart person um, that he's operating in a, in a highly political environment in which the legitimacy of the court is called into question by commentators, um, by scholars, uh, you know, he's, and he cares about the court a great deal, I'm sure. He clerked on the court. He clerked for Justice Rehnquist. Uh, he argued before the court. That was his professional life. And, uh, and he doesn't want to leave it weaker than he found it. So that's part of his equation, I'm sure. But, but, there is a, but there is a feeling, people say, this is the most political Washington's ever been. It's the most political America's ever been. It's the most polarized America has ever been. And, and I'm wondering if you get the sense that, that not just Roberts, but the, the court feels that. Do you feel it as someone who's, who's observed and covered the court for such a long time that this is a very different atmosphere that they're in than has ever been before? Well, it, it, it is different. I mean, I started covering the court in the late 1970s. And at that time, um, anybody arguing a case before the court had to make a pitch to three or four justices in the middle of the court. It, there was not, you know, an Anthony Kennedy, four on one side, four on the other, and the decision was going to depend on which side of the bed Anthony Kennedy got up on that morning. <laughs> it, it was a very different dynamic. And so, uh, you know, it's changed over time because uh, Republican presidents in the interval had many more opportunities, just as it happened, uh, to put people on the court. Uh, so, yes, I mean, I'm, I'm concerned and I've written a lot about uh, concern about polarization and, uh, well, it legitimacy of the court is almost a cliche by this time, but, um, but you know, what do we mean by legitimacy? So um, a, a professor at Harvard Law School wrote a, I think, very smart article, actually a book um, within the last year or so. He said, what, what, do we, what do we mean by when we talk about the legitimacy of the Supreme Court? He said there were three kind of definitions of legitimacy. There's legal legitimacy. That means, is the court making use of the materials available to it? Uh, you know, honest use of precedent, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, plausible interpretations of statutes, that kind of thing. That's legal legitimacy. Then he said there's sociological legitimacy. Do their decisions strike the public as being plausible, as, you know, being within the zone of acceptability. Uh, and then ultimately there's moral legitimacy, uh, which is much more ineffable. And, you know, the, the, the mortals among us can't really evaluate that so much. <laughs> Although maybe, you know, maybe we, can, I mean, I, 
I might ding the, uh, the Shelby County, the voting rights case as not, not displaying moral legitimacy actually, but that's maybe above my pay grade. But, um, you know, I think, I think John Roberts, I think the justices kind of know all this. Uh, they've got other imperatives too. I mean, they want, they have things they want to do. They have uh, precedents on the books that they think are profoundly wrong. They have, you know, goals that think the law should achieve. And it, every case, or, or, you know, cases, some more, some less, uh, bring all those things into focus, all those things into balance. That's what makes it so fascinating to uh, to be a court watcher in these times. It's interesting, though, you bring up those those three modes of legitimacy. We can't really do much about the, the moral legitimacy. And the, the, the first of the three, I'm certainly not qualified to, to comment on, but that middle one about whether or not it's something that's resonant with the, the public. I, I'm wondering how, how you think about that. You know, your, your newspaper, The New York Times, will often publish uh, opinion polls about how people feel about a case as the court is deciding it. And sometimes it's very split. And sometimes it, it seems f- fairly clear that America um, feels one way and the court feels another way. A, a good example of where the court went with America was the 6 3 uh, LGBT decision that we were talking about earlier, where clearly America feels as though transgender and, and gay rights are something we should have. And the court went along with that. Does does the court think about that and about what Americans, by and large, believe should be happening? I don't think the justices think about that consciously, uh, but I think they've got to be aware of it. For one thing, anything like, well, one thing that's interesting about maybe a link between the LGBT case and the DACA case, anybody pretty much. I'm oversimplifying, but pretty much anybody can file a friend of the court brief and tell the court, here's what I think you should, here's where I'm coming from. Here's my interest in this case. You have to have a statement of interest and here's what I think you should do. So in both the DACA and the LGBT case, corporate America weighed in and said to the court, uh, we as employers want these protections for our gay and transgender employees please interpret Title VII that way. We as employers value uh, the dreamers who are working for us, who are the healthcare workers in our hospitals, who are, you know, working in our labs and doing whatever. Don't allow them to be sacrificed. And that, you know, that's not like reading a poll in a newspaper, but that's, you know, elite America speaking to these nine elite people that happen to be the justices of the Supreme Court. And that's got to make a difference. I'm sure it does. I mean, um, there's a good book came out last year or so by um, a political scientist and a law professor, two co-authors, called The Company They Keep. Mm. And the point was, what's the relationship between the court and public opinion? And what they said was, it's not so much mass public opinion. That's an abstraction. That doesn't mean much to the justices. What the justices respond to instinctively, necessarily, is elite public opinion. Hmm. Uh, the opinion of their peers in the professions, 
the scholars who evaluate them in the law reviews and that, that kind of thing. And to the extent that the elites in this country have become ever more polarized, I mean, think of it, the notion of, you know, the, the uh, after dinner coffee hour at around Catherine Graham's salon in Georgetown, where liberals and conservatives, the titans of Washington would, you know, having had a nice meal together, would break out the cigars and the brandy. Um, that doesn't happen anymore. And so the polarization of the elites kind of uh, both explains and, and maximizes engenders the uh, the polarization on the court. It's kind of, it's fascinating, but it's it, so, so yeah, the newspaper polls are very interesting, but I think that's not, doesn't quite capture the world as the Supreme Court sees the world. I, I will say, I guess I, I don't miss the days in which a whole bunch of elites get together and over cigars decide the fate of America. So I, I guess I'm pretty, I'm pretty okay with, with that having gone by the wayside. Um, Linda Greenhouse, thank you so much. It's been wonderful talking with you. Continued success covering the court. Thank you. That's it for Steady Habits. Our Steady Beats are provided by George Mastrianis and Dave Swanson and recorded at Legend Studios in Avon, Connecticut. Our show is produced by Jessica Friedman. Thanks to Bruce Potterman, Beth Hamilton, and Kyle Constable. I'm John Dankosky, and we'll see you soon.